This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series. And on this day in history in 1789, in New York City, George Washington is inaugurated as the first president of the United States. In March, the new U.S. Constitution officially took effect, and in April, Congress formally sent word to Washington that he had won the presidency. Today, you're about to hear the inconceivable story of America's first president, George Washington. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become king of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732. The first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen subjects of the king, but the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father Augustine dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother Mary, but the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners, he reads English magazines and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. 
Land was the most valuable commodity in an agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day. It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia Regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering Cold War between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War, in North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of George Washington, who on this day in history in 1789 was inaugurated as our very first president. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Let's return to George Washington's story. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. 14 are killed, 26 are wounded, Washington isn't touched. At 24, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience of the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character, and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then, in 1752, after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon, He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For ten years he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two. Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious, universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved with ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. And that is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! 
Within the year, they are married, having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was, um, she socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse, but he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune, and such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Joshua, unload them! Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination. This time, within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, 
Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. And when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon, Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. But along with his appointment, also comes a learning curve. The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams of Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington. our American stories, we continue with the life of George Washington. We will be left defenseless, gentlemen. He didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress. He did not have a strong voice. He wasn't an orator, but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson. I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there, but he knew himself. He knew he wasn't an original thinker. What Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it. 
and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. Mr. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized, recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, Resolution carries. asserting America's right to choose their own government, absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political band which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army, he, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flog the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Yes, what is it? Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York, 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open. The British were able to run around it and nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights, a defeat at White Plains. A disaster for Washington at Fort Washington. Another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill. And the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, 
the Continental Army was melting away. Uh, the jig seemed just about up. Washington was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops cross the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain. 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonets, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. Take all the sea bread you can carry. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was. He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, cajoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. 
And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And when we come back, our final segment, The Life of George Washington, America's First President and the Father of Our Nation. This is Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our podcasts and to listen to all that we do. More after these messages. And now the final segment in our hour-long celebration of the life of George Washington, our nation's first president and the father of our country. Let's continue where we left off. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, 
the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19, 1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir, the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Sir, my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid. They don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15th, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned. But he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war 
which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! Not stand aside. And if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing. So he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have... not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title founding father and there you have it an hour on the life of George Washington and if you can folks go to ouramericannetwork.org get the link send it to your friends when they're driving around they can hear this story they need to hear and know this story my goodness they're not teaching it in high schools in America they're certainly not teaching it in colleges well there's one college that is and that's Hillsdale College and all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks there who teach the things that matter in life, the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I wanted to leave, though, with one of my favorite books and a couple of quotes. And read this when you can. Get it on audio. It's great. David McCullough's 1776. In part one... The opening chapter starts with a quote from General George Washington, the date, January 14, 1776. And he had these words to say, The reflection upon my situation 
and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. McCullough closes with these words about Washington. He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood, and in this his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And that's the thing about Washington, that perseverance. Without George Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Green foresaw as the war went on, quote, George Washington will be the deliverer of his own country. This is Lee Habib, George Washington's story, America's founding story, here on Our American Stories. Once upon a time there was an engineer. Choo-choo Charlie was his name we hear. He had an engine and he sure had fun. He's good and plenty candy to make his train run. Charlie says, love my good and plenty. Charlie says, really rings the bell. Charlie says... This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And you were listening to the uh, Good and Plenty theme song. That was my favorite snack. My parents would give it to me at the end of the week when I'd been a good boy. And I loved that song, and I loved the soft Good and Plenty. I hated the hard ones. I hated the old ones. I loved the fresh ones. And, well, today's piece is from Heidi Mitchell. And, by the way, we had a great segment with her on tickling last week. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look up the tickling segment. It was fabulous. And, well, she had the burning question column, and last week she was on with us about that tickling. This week, her latest piece of art, Which Foods Make the Best Bedtime Snack? And uh, for me, it was always good and plenty. Uh, that's what I love to eat right before I went to bed. It's what I love to eat any time of the day, frankly. <laughs> Heidi, is this really a burning question? That's what we want to know. <laughs> well, my burning question is, is licorice genetically loved or disloved? Because mm. I don't, I can never eat those good and plenties. But yes, my my late night snack is ice cream, as I'm sure many Americans are. Oh, you still good doing one. good and plenties? That's a good. Oh, I still. I, I yes, my wife. I have a stash all over the house. Any time is good. <laughs> Any time is good. It's just my. You know, Ronald Reagan, as you know, it was jelly beans all the time. He had them everywhere near him. So that was his favorite right. snack, not just bedtime. Some people just have that one thing. Uh, but uh, what now? What what led you to this column, Heidi? What was the what was what was on the mind when you wrote it? Well, I, like I said, I am I'm a late night snacker. I'm really good at starving myself all day, and then just I can't take it anymore, and I just go for cheese and <laughs> chips and and ice cream. So I wanted to know what was what was driving that. So I spoke to Dr. David Ernest, and what was super interesting about him. He's at Texas A&M Health Science Center, and he studies body clocks. But he had this great thought, which I never really thought of, which is that, you know, we're working these ridiculous hours, right? All of us are on this 24-hour day work schedule. And so we skip meals. Now, someone like me, I'm just trying to keep my weight in check, so I'm skipping meals. But then, you know, come the end of the day, we need a little bit of energy, and so what that snacking, he says that late night snacking isn't even really snacking. It's meal replacement for so many people. So I was curious about that. I thought that was really interesting. You know, in the piece you wrote, quote, but then after 11 p.m. or midnight, you're hungry. 
Dr. Ernest said. So what you're doing is not really snacking. You're replacing a normal meal with something quick and easy to consume. So this is the, this is the post-dinner dinner is basically what you're saying. Right, exactly. And if, especially if your day is stretching on past, you know, 17 hours or so, you know, you kind of need that fourth meal or you skipped a meal and so you're just super hungry. And so, you know, it is sort of it's either an extra meal because you got to get more energy or it's the meal you skipped because you were so busy during lunch that you didn't have it. You had, and, and you're not going to cook a healthful meal late at night, right? So you're yep. going to eat whatever's readily available and marketing companies are very good at enticing us with packaging and delicious good and plenty. And then there's always, of course, that you're not hungry at all and it's 1030 at night and you can't go to sleep and you want to catch up with your favorite AMC series. So you go downstairs and you open up the fridge and you get everything out of there and you just keep eating until you fall asleep, which is occasionally (laughs) what I do. Isn't that the the best? best? I can eat a whole pound of cheese. Standing up at the counter. Well, we, we, we really cannot terrible. get together. I think uh, th- th- it wouldn't end well. We'd both be in a sugar coma <laughs> and the cops would have to haul us off in body bags. Heidi, so it sounds to me like you were wondering whether other people had this weird habit that you had. That's what it sounds like it was going on there. Yes, I think that was the impetus for this week. I we'll think see how so. next week goes. I think so too. So, yeah, why do- so what's interesting is that, that that craving for, you know, high protein, high fat food late at night, it's actually, it's, it's fine to eat, you know, it's not great, but it's fine to eat that stuff during the day, but it's worse for you at night. So let's get to that though. That what, What's the time? I mean, we're now turning this from a fun thing into a health thing, which we hope we're not scaring the <laughs> listeners, okay? Because we don't want to talk about health too often. Um, and this isn't a health segment, but why does eating certain foods at certain times of the day produce different results? In other words, why should we be eating some things earlier and some things later and why maybe we shouldn't eat anything later well so you know so if you're a night owl and you're trying to push through you know you want some high energy food and your body your body will take it and and it'll run with it it really your body you know it's on a clock right so so it wants to wake up in the morning be filled with like all kinds of yummy heavy foods and push you through the day but at night, it wants to start winding down, and we're wired that way for millennia, right, or yep. hundreds of thousands of years. So, so then if you, if you eat that stuff late at night, well, then you're jolting your body back up to life, right? So you're, you're supposed to be winding down, but instead you're like, no, I'm going to eat that bag of delicious salt and vinegar chips, and now your body's like, oh, right, it's time to wake up. So then you're alert and your body, all the stuff goes into, your metabolism goes into action, all stuff happens internally and um, and it's just not good for your body clock. You're totally messing with yourself. Yep, yep. And by the way, it says here that maybe later at night you might want to think about eating things like cherries or bananas or pineapple. And I can only tell you this doesn't work for me because what I do is I get the, I get that two pound bag of Bing cherries and I wipe them out and right. then I'm on a raging sugar high at like two in the morning. But you know, moder- I guess moderation is the key to everything, Heidi. What's your broad takeaway from researching bedtime snacking? What's the relationship between how we eat and how we sleep? Well, you know, you, sh- you should stop eating you know, about eight o'clock. But what, what I thought was super interesting was that what you eat like 12 hours before has an impact on what you're, what happens to you later on. So this, this doctor, I think this is pretty fun. He said, if you eat something high in omega threes, like salmon, for example, um, at say at lunch, eat that at lunch. And then at night you go for your mad men binge fest, 
slash tub of Ben and Jerry's, you might be okay. You might be canceling out the bad fat protein stuff that's in all the ice cream. Right. And instead, it's all going to be okay because we eat that salmon at lunch. Only if you indulge occasionally. (laughs) You can't live your life this way every day. Yep. Well, Heidi, we always appreciate what you write at the Wall Street Journal. And which foods make the best bedtime snack? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to our website. Better still, go to the Wall Street Journal and catch the article. Thanks so much for joining us, Heidi. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Muddy Waters, and that's The Last Waltz, directed by Martin Scorsese, Dr. John, Eric Clapton, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Ronnie Hawkins, but you knew the man who stole the show was Muddy Waters. And Jesse's a big, my boy Jesse here is a big blues fan, and we've got a piece on Muddy Waters. He was an American blues musician who was often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues. Muddy grew up on Stovall Plantation near Clarksdale, Mississippi, just about an hour from Oxford, where we broadcast from. And we bring you on this day, his death in 1983, his story. Muddy Waters was born McKinley Morganfield on April 4th, 1915, in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, a rural town on the Mississippi River. He was given the moniker Muddy Waters because he played in the swampy puddles of the Mississippi River as a boy. When Waters was just three years old, his mother, Bertha Jones, died, and he was subsequently sent to Clarksdale to live with his grandmother, Deliah Jones. Waters began to play the harmonica around the age of five and became quite good. He received his first guitar at the age of 17 and taught himself to play by listening to recordings of Mississippi blues legends like Charlie Patton. First with the harmonica, as I said, what the kids begin to the water from the harmonica I like. And I uh, picked up the guitar after listening to a great old guy by the name of Sunhouse. And, and when I was, became 17 years old, you heard of Saturday Night Fish Fries. Uh, but we call them, used to have a, a supper to go to the juke house or whatever. They had different guys come in from all over, like uh, playing these, these, at these parties. Guys like Charlie Patton and, and the Mississippi Sheiks and, and Sunhouse, all the kind of people that I learned with them. Although Waters spent countless hours working as a sharecropper at a cotton plantation, he found time to entertain folks around the town with his music. It wasn't a, a going easy thing, because uh, we was doing it cause like sharecropping. I raised up like a sharecropper, you know. Worked on the plantation where we raised cotton and corn and beans and all that jive. And, and it wasn't exactly slavery time, but it wasn't, it wasn't really good time, you know. I mean, we have a good time. I, I learned all, all, all of my music through that spirit. So it was wonderful to, for me to, I guess, to live that. And then I know what I was 
climbed a line. In 1941, he joined the Salias Green Tent Show and began to travel. A lot of it came right out the field where I liked and, and doing my work on the plantation because uh, I grew up to be uh, able to drive tractors and trucks and before I left, I was in my late 20s when I left Mississippi. As he began to gain recognition, his ambition grew. Now, when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I going to be the greatest man alive. But now I'm a man, way past 21. You got to believe me, woman. I have lots of fun. I'm a man. Then, after Alan Lomax and John Work, who were archivists and researchers for the Library of Congress Field Recordings Project, caught wind of Waters' unique style, they sought him out to make this recording. Later in the evening, child, I feel like blowing my home. I woke up this morning to find my, my little baby gone. Mm-hmm. Late over in the evening, man, man, I feel like, like my home. Well, I woke up this morning, baby. In 1943, Muddy Waters finally picked up and headed to Chicago, Illinois, where music was shaping a generation. The following year, his uncle gave him an electric guitar. It was with this guitar that he was able to develop the legendary style that transformed the rustic blues of the Mississippi with the urban vibe of the big city. Working at a paper mill by day, Waters was sweeping the blues scene by night. By 1946, he had grown so popular that he'd begun making recordings for big record companies such as RCA, Columbia, and Aristocrat. It wasn't until 1950, when Aristocrat became Chess Records, that Waters' career really began to take off. Well, my mother Rolling Stone, one of his singles, became so popular that it went on to influence the name of the major music magazine as well as one of the most famous rock bands to date, the Rolling Stones. He's gonna be a Rolling Stone. Sure enough, he's a Rolling Stone. Sure enough, he's a Rolling Stone. Well, he's a... By 1951, Muddy Waters had established a full band with his Otis Spann on piano, Little Walter on harmonica, Jimmy Rogers on second guitar, and Elgin Evans on drums. The band's recordings were increasingly popular in New Orleans, Chicago, and the Delta region in the United States. But it wasn't until 1958, when the group brought their electric blues sound to England, that Muddy Waters became an international star. After the English tour, Muddy Waters' fan base expanded and began to catch the attention of the rock and roll community. His performance at the 1960 Newport Jazz Festival was a particularly pivotal point in his career as it caught the attention of a new fan base. Waters was able to adapt the changing times and his electric blues sound to fit in well with the love generation. Some folk are free, but it won't last. 
Waters continued to record with rock musicians throughout the 1960s and 70s and won his first Grammy Award in 1971 from the album They Call Me Muddy Waters. After his 30-year run with Chess Records, he went his separate way in 1975, suing the record company for royalties after his final release with them, Muddy Waters' Woodstock album. Waters signed on with Blue Sky label after the split. He then captivated audiences with his appearance in The Band's Farewell Performance, known as The Last Waltz, an exceptionally star-studded affair that was released as a film by Martin Scorsese in 1978. I'm a full-grown man. Man! I'm a nice-born lover's man. Man! I'm a rolling stone. By the end of his lifetime, Muddy Waters had garnered six Grammys as well as countless other honors. He died after suffering a heart attack on April 30th, 1983, in Downers Grove, Illinois. Since his death, Muddy Waters' contribution to the music world has continued to gain recognition. In 1987, Waters was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Five years later, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences awarded the musician a Lifetime Achievement Grammy Award. Some of the most recognizable names in music have named Muddy Waters as their single greatest influence, including Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Johnny Winter. Wasn't that a man? Muddy Waters! Here's Eric Clapton. Most of the players that came to Chicago that were, that were really vital came from what they call the Mississippi Delta, the Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. They played in bands and they played uh, in clubs. They had actually a way to become sophisticated, I think, and had competition. The guys would come up and they'd go and visit Muddy in his club and they'd see how sharp he was and, and the kind of suits he was wearing and the kind of money he was getting and they'd have to revise their act and they'd speed, it would speed up the process and bring out the best, the absolute best in everybody. I would have been 18 or 19 and I got a call from this guy Mike Vernon. He said, this is a great opportunity for you to come and play with Muddy and Otis. I tried my best to be cool but I was just in bits. All I can remember is them dancing. I remember them because they, I played, we, we all did it and it was over in about an hour. It was so fast. And these guys had suits on that were like silver silk, big suits. And, and that when they were listening to the playback, they danced and they held their trousers up. So that, you know, they, they were big trousers and they would do these kind of fancy foot steps of holding their trousers up like skirts, you know. And it was just breathtaking. He meant a great deal to me, and his music still does, probably more than anybody else's. It was the first, really, that got to me, and it still is the most important music in my life today, is the music of Muddy Waters. Though Muddy Waters' life lasted from April 4th, 1915 to April 30th, 1983, passing away at the age of 70, his music influenced the blues and rock world for an eternity. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. 
Great job on that, Jesse. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of McKinley Morganfield, a.k.a. Muddy Waters. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear this and all the other things that we do. This is Our American Stories, and this story comes to us from Michael T. Powers, the owner of a video production company, a youth pastor, and the author of the book Heart Touchers, Life-Changing Stories of Faith, Love, and Laughter, which includes the following story. Every year, Michael's hired by an eighth-grade class to capture their trip to Washington, D.C., and in the year 2000, their last stop was at the Marine Corps War Memorial, which is the largest bronze statue in the world and depicts one of the most famous photographs in history. It's of the five Marines and one Navy corpsman who raised the American flag at the top of Mount Suribachi on the island of Iwo Jima, Japan, during World War II. And here's Michael with what happened next. So over 100 students and a chaperones piled off the buses and headed towards the memorial. I noticed a solitary figure at the base of the statue, and and as I got closer, he looked at me and he asked, So, what's your name, and where are you guys from? I told him my name was Michael Powers and that we were from Clinton, Wisconsin. Hey, I am a cheesehead too. Come, gather around, cheeseheads, and I will tell you a story. James Bradley just happened to be in Washington, D.C. to speak at the memorial the following day. He was there that night, because he wanted to say goodnight to his dad, who had previously passed away, and whose image is part of the statue. He was just about to leave when he saw the buses pull up. I videotaped him as he spoke to us, and I received his permission to share what he said from my videotape. See, it's one thing to tour the incredible monuments filled with history in Washington, D.C., but it's quite another to get the kind of insight that we received that night. When we had all gathered around, he reverently began to speak. Here are his words from that night. My name is James Bradley, and I'm from Anago, Wisconsin. My dad is on that statue, and I just wrote a book called Flags of Our Fathers, which is number five on the New York Times bestseller list. It's the story of the six boys that you see behind me. Six boys raised that flag. The first guy putting the pole in the ground, his name is Harlan Block. See, Harlan was an all-state football player, he enlisted in the Marine Corps with all the senior members of his football team. They were off to play another type of game, a game called war. But it didn't turn out to be a game. Harlan, at the age of 21, died with his intestines in his hands. I don't say that to gross you out. I say that because there are people who stand in front of this statue and they talk about the glory of war. You guys need to know that most of the boys in Iwo Jima 17, 18, and 19 years old. He pointed to the statue. You see this next guy? That's Rene Gagnon from New Hampshire. If you took his helmet off at the moment this photo was taken and you looked in the webbing of that helmet, you would find a photograph. A photograph of his girlfriend. He put it there for protection because he was scared. <laughs> 
He was 18 years old. Boys won the Battle of Iwo Jima. Boys, not old men. The next guy here, the third guy in this tableau, was Sergeant Mike Strank. Mike is my hero. In fact, he was the hero of all these guys. They called him the old man because he was so old. He was already 24. When Mike would motivate his boys in training camp, he didn't say, let's go kill the enemy or let's go die for our country. He knew he was talking to boys. Instead, he would say, you guys do what I say and I will get you home to your mothers. The last guy on this side of the statue is Ira Hayes, a Pima Indian from Arizona. Ira Hayes walked off of Iwo Jima. He went into the White House with my dad. President Truman told him, Son, you're a hero. He told reporters later, How can I feel like a hero when 250 of my buddies hit the island with me and only 27 of us walked off alive? So think about this. You you take your class at school, maybe 250 of you, spending a year together, having fun, doing everything together. And then all 250 of you hit the beach, but only 27 of your classmates walk off alive. That was Ira Hayes. He had images of horror in his mind. Ira Hayes died dead drunk face down at the age of 32, 10 years after this picture was taken. The next guy, as we go around the statue, is Franklin Sousley from Hilltop, Kentucky, a fun-loving hillbilly boy. His best friend, who's now 70 years old, he told me, yeah, you know, we took two cows up on the porch of the Hilltop General Store, and then we strung wire across the stairs so that those cows couldn't get down. And then we fed them Epsom salts. Man, those cows, they crapped all night. Yeah, he was a fun-loving hillbilly boy. But Franklin died on Iwo Jima at the age of 19. And when the telegram came to tell his mother that he was dead, it went to the Hilltop General Store. And a barefoot boy ran that telegram up to his mother's farm. And the neighbors, they could hear her scream all night and into that next morning. And the neighbors lived a quarter of a mile away. The next guy, as we continue to go around the statue, is my dad, John Bradley from Anago, Wisconsin, where I was raised. My dad lived until 1994, but he would never give interviews. When Walter Cronkite's producers or the New York Times would call, we were trained as little kids to say, No, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. My dad's not here. He's in uh, Canada fishing. No, uh, no, there's no phone there, sir. No, no, we, we don't know when he's coming back. My dad never fished or even went to Canada. Usually he was sitting right there at the table eating his Campbell's soup. But we, we had to tell the press that he was out fishing. He didn't want to talk to the press. You see, my dad didn't see himself as a hero. Everyone thinks these guys are heroes because they're in a photo and a monument. My dad knew better. He was a medic. John Bradley from Wisconsin was a caregiver. In Iwo Jima, he probably held over 200 boys as they died. And when boys died in Iwo Jima, they writhed and they screamed in pain. When I was a little boy, my third grade teacher told me that my dad was a hero. When I went home and told my dad that, he looked at me and he said, 
I want you always to remember that the heroes of Iwo Jima are the guys who did not come back. Did not come back. So that's the story about six nice young boys. Three died on Iwo Jima and three came back as national heroes. Overall, 7,000 boys died on Iwo Jima in the worst battle in the history of the Marine Corps. My voice is giving out and so I will end here. Thank you all for your time. We were stunned. Suddenly, the monument wasn't just a big old piece of metal with a flag sticking out of the top. It came to life before our eyes with the heartfelt words of a son who did indeed have a father who was a hero. Maybe not a hero in his own eyes, but a hero nonetheless. And thank you for that reading, Michael. And boy, the class, what a lucky class to bump into James Bradley and hear that story. Bringing life to his statue, real life. James Bradley's book, Flags of Our Fathers, well, it became a fantastic hit for Clint Eastwood. By the same name, of course. Imagine those numbers. 250 boys hit the beaches. 27 survive. It's unimaginable. And we don't just bring you these stories on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. They come to you year-round because you need to hear them. We all need to hear them. This is Our American Stories, Michael Powers' story, James Bradley's story, and his father's. This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific. Real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Edberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. 
He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got, I got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny. Then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. His comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool, I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. To hell with purple people. (laughs) Unless they're suffocating. (laughs) Then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did. He said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, 
long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. (laughs) Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. Then it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. (laughs) I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-size bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. (laughs) Oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-size bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. (laughs) All day. This is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. 
This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year, and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job, even at the peak of his fame, because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes, he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a, I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. I'm Greg Hengler. And this is Our American Stories.